Let us pray. Heavenly Father, satisfy our hunger. In Jesus' name, amen. We are all hungry. Sometimes our stomach is growling, and we know exactly what we are hungry for, and we go, and we consume it, and we feel satisfied. Other times we stand in front of the refrigerator, just staring at it, and or maybe sitting at Cheesecake Factory and going through the 5,000 pages of options that we can choose from, hoping that just something will satisfy us. We eventually settle on something. It may or may not actually satisfy us, but at least our stomach is full, the growling is stopped, and we can get back to thinking about what it is that we really want. There are bigger hungers, hangry hungers that have us buying, dreaming, vacationing, running from place to place, sometimes running away in order to try to fill a void that is such a hungering dark that no matter what we pour into it, it's never satisfied. Maybe you've been through such a time. Maybe you're going through one right now. A hungering dark that absorbs everything and leaves nothing behind in its wake. I was flying into Milwaukee and I happened to have a window seat and I looked out and there was a huge granite quarry. And you know how big those Euclid dump trucks are, those giant ones? There was a couple at the bottom that literally looked like toys. And it wasn't because I was looking at it from an airplane. I suddenly realized how huge this chasm was. And then I began to wonder, what would it take to fill that? And the answer is, more than we have. We do not draw people to Christ by yelling at them or, or telling them how wrong they are and how holy and righteous we are. We open the possibility of a relationship with Jesus by letting them know that we know just how hungry they are because we ourselves are hungry. And oversimplifying it, we discovered a tiny wafer and sip of wine fills us in a way that nothing else can. Even when our stomachs are still empty or our lives are still upside down, that sip of wine and tiny wafer draws to Jesus who holds the hungering dark at bay. Beyond food, what most of us are hungry for is to be known. To know our life and our everything that we have done and the things that we wish to do aren't going to be in vain. There comes a point in our life where we realize our bank accounts, awards, homes, jobs, pretty much everything we have accumulated is just stuff. Oh, it's good stuff, but it's still just stuff. And as King Solomon says, when we die, it's going to go to somebody who, well, may or may not care about it or for it. And so if our life is more than just stuff, what defines our life? I mean, what do we really have that, that's going to say who we really are beyond our stuff? Being a follower of Jesus can be a bit embarrassing. Oh, not so much for us, but for our friends and family, especially those who are not believers. You see, the world's fantasies and myths are found on the Hallmark Channel, science fiction movies, and whatever temporary escapes they use whenever life gets overwhelming. But they know such things aren't real. They're just momentary distractions from reality. But those of us who believe, we... Well, we claim that God simply spoke and created the heavens and the earth. Uh, that Jonah got swallowed by a big fish. That Moses talked to a burning bush. Joshua won a battle by simply blowing a trumpet. And Jesus rose from the grave three days after he died. And this causes non-believers to ask, well, how can an otherwise normal person believe in such impossible things? And that brings us to today's gospel. 
A little boy gives up his lunch, two fish and five loaves of bread. It's an awfully big lunch, which either means he has a very generous mother or the fish were sardines and the bread was just those little tiny king's Hawaiian rolls. Our text says Jesus took the fish and bread, prayed a little prayer, and suddenly fish and bread were flying everywhere like water out of a fire hose. 5,000 men, yeah, and who knows how many women and kids were fed. They didn't even have to wait for Uber Eats. They didn't have to wait for, well, you know how long it is to wait sometimes. It, it just was there. And the disciples, as fast as they would run to the crowds, everyone was satisfied. I've tried to imagine what it looked like. I, I'll be honest, I can't. It, it, it really is a miracle. I was sitting in a church in the 1970s, heard a pastor tell the story of stone soup in order to explain this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. If you don't know the story, a traveler arrives in town, he asks for something to eat, and the people in the town say, we don't have any food for ourselves, let alone to share with anybody else. Uh, the traveler announces he's going to make his famous stone soup, and he boils the water, selects just the perfect stone, puts it in the water, and lets it simmer. Time comes to taste it. The whole town gathers around, wondering what kind of magic this could be. He smacks his lip and says, amazing. You know, the only thing that could possibly make it better would be a little bit of meat. And this woman says, I happen to have a little bit of meat. Uh, let me run and get it. And she does. And she comes back and she puts it in the stew. And, and he waits a little while. Then he tastes. He says, oh, it's fantastic. But, you know, you know, what would make it a little bit better would be some potatoes. And this farmer says, yeah, I happen to have a couple of potatoes. Runs off and gets the potatoes, brings it back, and puts it in there. And moment after moment, the traveler continues to taste it. Say, uh, you know, what would really make this better would be some carrots, some celery, and all sorts of things. And each time, somebody raises their hand and says, I happen to have a little of that. Let me go get it. The people of the town enjoy this community feast. Everyone is satisfied, and it really is amazing. And the moral of the story is the food was there all the time. The traveler just had to draw it out of them. In other words, he had to take them from selfishness to generosity. Now, there is no doubt this was a miracle of sorts. But compared to Jesus taking two fish, five loaves, and turning it into a feast of thousands, which, by the way, they still had leftovers. Well, in case you were wondering, by the way, that last part about leftovers is actually very important, both theologically and personally. If I thought this text was as simple as getting all of you to share your lunches, well, the sermon would be over because you supposedly learned that in kindergarten. But if we as a community and as individuals are going to make it through our life journey, we need more than inspirational stories, lessons on morals, and pie in the sky someday maybe definitely promises. We need the miracles of God. A miracle by definition is something that only God can do. In other words, if you and I can do it in any way, shape, or form, not a miracle. Now, the reason only God can do it is because of sin. This is very important. In reality, a miracle of God is doing something that should be perfectly normal. Not just for God, but for all of us as well. Being healed and whole, forgiven, loved, eternal, caring for one another, encouraging one another. That should be the way things are, not just for some people, but for everyone. But of course it isn't. And so in the midst of a messed up world full of pain and selfishness, God does for us what we either can't or won't do for ourselves and for one another. The greatest benefit of a miracle is realizing we have a God who loves us so much that even though we do not deserve it, He doesn't always wait until we get to heaven to make us and the world right. Sometimes He, he gives us a glimpse of what eternity and heaven is going to actually be like. So what is your favorite ingredient to cook with or, or your, free, your favorite creative medium to work with? 
Every dinner, every art project starts somewhere. We, we need a base, a foundation, something to build upon, something to add things to, to create whatever we're creating. Noodles, rice, beef, tofu, canvas, piano, clay. Every chef, every artist, every person has their favorite. But it must be noted that everything we create requires that we start well, and even continue with something. None of us can create with nothing. God is different. God's favorite material to work with is nothing. Way back in Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and He did so just by speaking. There was nothing, and then there was something. The fancy word is ex nihilo, and out of nothing. Again, that puts us back in miracle territory. But God didn't stop working with nothing after creation because whenever the world says we, and it doesn't matter whether the world's talking about us corporately as the church or us individually as Christians, are insignificant, unworthy, nothing, dreamers, all the words that they use to describe those of us who are believers, that's when God rolls up his sleeves and says, you know what, that's something I can work with. Mary and Elizabeth's empty womb. A tax collector, a Pharisee, a runaway slave, a murderer, a prodigal son, a lost sheep, a dying man on a cross, a tomb just outside Jerusalem. All things that the world dismisses as lost causes, impossible dreams. To that our text adds a bunch of people with empty stomachs on a hillside listening to a bunch of sermons. The Bible boldly declares in Romans 4.17, God calls things that are not into existence. I'm waiting until September for the latest season of the Great British Baking Show. If you've never watched it, it sets 12 chefs uh, not so much against each other as they are set against the task which the expert chefs have set before them. Each one has everything they need to create a set number of identical dishes that measure not only how well they follow directions, but also how creative they can be in the process. I would love to set up the big white tent at the foot of the hill Jesus was preaching from. Put two fish, five loaves of bread, which, by the way, because there are 12 chefs, we'd have to divide the two fish and the five loaves up. That would be 0.16 fish and 0.41 loaves of bread before the 12 chefs set the timer for one minute and then tell them that they have to feed thousands upon thousands and still have leftovers. Now, part of the great British breaking show is the chefs uncovering the ingredients with a flourish and remarking that they either have or have not worked with this. Now, no, the show always gives the chefs everything they need to make whatever it is they have to make, along with a whole bunch of optional items. Two fish, five loaves of bread. How many people do you think that would really feed? That's exactly what the disciples were wondering. I mean, they aren't chefs, so they immediately check with Judas about how much is in the checkbook. And Judas notes it would take a major fundraiser to feed all of these people, even if there was a local caterer capable of providing the food. The disciples immediately declare the whole thing impossible. Disciples could only see their own resources. They couldn't see beyond themselves. They forgot who it is that they were working for. You know, the one who asked the question is the same word that God spoke when a universe popped up where there wasn't one a second before. I need that to sink in for a minute. I mean, if God can create a universe out of nothing, what do you think he can do with a unique and unreproducible miracle? And I'm talking about you. Ever had an idea for ministry? Something that would do some good in the world? 
I mean, the first thing we often say is, it's impossible. We obviously don't have what we need. You know, if God wants us to do something, he will make sure that we have everything we need to get it done. And by the way, often allows us for some creativity in the process. We may have to look around, work a little harder, create some new partnerships, dream, imagine, all of which, by the way, continually leads us back to God. The Bible says a man's heart plans his journey, but the Lord determines his steps. That's shorthand for we need to learn to do things God's way, not ours. See, you're important to God, and you are important not because of what you've done or not done. You're important because you are you. We always have to start right there. God won't love you more or less based upon what you do or don't do. I know that's the way the world works, but that's not how God works. You were loved and known even before God spoke the universe into being. When you start to wrap your soul around that simple truth, God begins to change you. And then God begins to use you to change the world. See, the purpose of the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't about feeding people's stomachs so that they could stick around and listen to more sermons. The purpose was God reminding us who he is and who we are and that all things really are possible through him. There are two categories of people in the world. I mean, that's the way we always think, okay? But the truth is, what, what Jesus is saying is there's actually only one category of people in the world. Jesus says all of us, believers and not believers, all of us are hungry and in need. There are not those who hunger and those who feed them. There are not those who teach and those who are taught. There are not those who are sick and those who heal. There are not those who preach and those who listen. There is just one category. Jesus says we are all hungry sinners in need of a loving Savior. Our text leaves out something very important. In the verses immediately before ours, John the baptizer is beheaded by King Herod. When Jesus gets the news, he stops what he's doing and he sets out for a place to be alone. Long before Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb, he weeps at the death of John the baptizer. But the crowds follow him. In fact, they get where he's going before he gets there. And in that moment, Jesus is just as wounded and hungry and in pain as the crowds that are surrounding him. The hungry and dark is growing. It's threatening to devour everything in its path. When Jesus looks out over the crowd whose stomachs are growling and those whose souls are empty, he asks, where are these people going to get something to satisfy them, to push the hungry darkness back? And he says, you feed them. Where is everyone going to find hope and promise, something to fill them with meaning and purpose? Our world has done much to push mystery and miracles into the realm of make-believe. If hunger was about nothing more than our government paying farmers to grow more wheat, loves reopening their bakery up the road, and delivery trucks driving around all hours of the day throwing loaves of bread at anyone and everyone who wants them, we could pull that off. But even if everyone had enough bread to eat, the hungry darkness would not be satisfied, and we would continue to consume ourselves and consume everyone else in hopes of somehow being satisfied. A little boy, two fish, five loaves of bread. It turns out, just like that little boy, you are the miracle of God. Not because you grow food or run a bakery or drive a delivery truck, but because you know what it means to be hungry. You know what it is to be afraid of the hungry and darkness. But you also have come to know when you come to the front of the sanctuary and I hand you a tiny wafer and a tiny sip of wine, 
there is a mystery of wholeness that is beyond our understanding. At least for now. We may not understand it, but it satisfies us in a way that nothing else can. The simple meal ties you to a cross and a death and a tomb, all filled with darkness and emptiness. But it also ties you to a God who says, I can work with that, and I can work with you. Even if you feel empty and dark inside, you are exactly who I love to work with and through to accomplish all things. And then God brings light into the darkness. He empties us of all of our emptiness and darkness, and he fills us up with himself. And by the way, and that himself is a very, very good thing to be filled with. If all those things like Jonah and the fish and Moses and the burning bush, Joshua and the trumpet, and Jesus' empty tomb are true, then it also means that heaven is real, that God loves us, that we're forgiven. And it's not because of the things that we've done, but because of what God did for us and in us and now is ready to do through us. None of the people on that hillside did anything to deserve the feast Jesus put before them. Their only qualification was they were hungry. I noted earlier that the leftovers were very important, both theologically and personally. What it says is God's love is more than we hope for, more than we need. The baskets were overflowing, which is God's way of saying there is always room for more of our friends and family to join us at the feast. God doesn't limit his love, his forgiveness, or his miracles. A simple kid's lunchbox, a, fe a feast for thousands, the love of God and the hungering darkness is suddenly stopped in its tracks. We hurl our words of fear and pain and hurt and emptiness and, well, even hunger into the hungering dark. And in return, we hear the echo of God's love and grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.